Some trials, people go through them, it causes them to draw closer to the Lord. And we saw that in the first sermon, right? Mary, she went looking for Jesus. She sought out Jesus in her life. Jesus came to her in seeking him out, and, she brought, and he brought assurance to her. The idea of assurance is that you may know the truth. You may know in your head what's supposed to happen, what the book says, but you've allowed outside information to transform the facts that you know, and those at that outside information begins to deter you from the direction you should be going. And then somebody comes along to bring you assurance. They bring surety to what you already know inside to give you the confidence to get moving in the right direction again. And that's exactly what Jesus did for Mary. Mary, thank you for seeking me out. And then he began to speak to her, right? And then last week we looked at how there's some people of the faith who will go the exact opposite direction. The road to Emmaus. We have Cleo and his pal, and they're walking the opposite direction toward lukewarmness in their life. They know the facts again, and Jesus has to come to them to bring them assurance to hold on to what they know so that they can be a part of what's going to take place. You know, sometimes when we go through these things in life, for some of us, and I think this would be myself included in this group of people, when you come through tragedy or you're going through something that's, that's a tribulation in your life, it's not like it's either seek Jesus out or go the opposite direction. For some of us, we don't know what to do. We're not moving towards Jesus. We're trying not to move away from Jesus. We're just there. I don't know what to do. I'm not quite sure what I believe in the moment. I don't really want to move. I don't want to move. And it's like you get stuck. And this morning I want to expound upon the next visitation of Jesus. Showing you what it looks like to be stuck. After Jesus visited Mary, then he goes to the road of Emmaus, and then the next time that we see him, Luke chapter 24, verses 33 through 34, building off of the road to Emmaus from last week. Luke 24, 33 through 34, but we're not going to stay there long. If you have your Bibles, you'd actually be better off turning to John chapter 20. Luke 24, 33 through 34 it's the end of the story of the road to Emmaus. Cleo and Pal, they rise up that very hour after they had the revelation of Jesus, and he returned to Jerusalem, and they returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, "The Lord is risen indeed." All of a sudden, they believe. Right? They believe enough that they'd walk back seven miles in the middle of the night. It doesn't even matter. All of a sudden, they have such a faith that it would cause them to walk through fear, cause them to walk through darkness, cause them to walk through any sort of, of tragedy that could happen to them along the road. This, this revelation of Jesus and what has taken place would drive them through a road. that they could, There could be robbers on, people who could kill them. There, there could be anything that could take place as they travel back on this road in the middle of the night to get to the disciples. They don't care because they've had a revelation of who Jesus is. They run back to share their experiences with the other disciples. There's this amazing assurance that Jesus gave them, and now they're giving to the other disciples. Listen, listen, listen. I know that we had all these facts, but we've allowed some outside information to start to creep up inside of us, but we want to bring you some surety to what we already know and believe. And so they begin to give them some assurance. They're all putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Oh, but wait. We're encouraging each other. I know that Mary saw this and Peter and John saw that. And, and all of these things are taking place in that room the moment they're there. And then the mercy of God happens to all of them at once. As if the women, 
here's the, here's the mercy of God. As if what the women had experienced came back and shared to the disciples, including they remembered his words, wasn't enough. As if when Peter and John went and saw the empty tomb themselves, and as they peered into the empty tomb, it, it brings out in both cases they saw the linen cloth that was wrapped around Jesus. And, and some of you that have been in the church know a long time that there was this one cloth, a napkin, that was folded up. And what that means is that I'm returning. Those facts weren't enough. As if Mary personally speaking to Jesus wasn't enough. As if Cleo and friends' experience wasn't enough. In the midst of them putting all these pieces of the puzzle together, when they've all chosen to gather together in his name, it happens. Put down the clues. Settle down for just a moment. Jesus steps into the room. I'm here to assure you all. Southern Jesus. Every single one of you, I want you to know, Luke 24, 36, as they said these things, as they said these things, they were in the middle of this, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. Like, can you imagine the ups and the downs, where their emotions were, like, you know, they were, they were high, and then they were low, and then they were lower, and then they're starting to put some of the pieces of the puzzle back together again, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, peace. Now, I want to take you, Luke continues in this story, but in order to get where I'm going today, we got to transfer to John chapter 20 and look at the same story. Verses 19 through 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus' response is peace. Peace. Now, you can read that however you want. Like, I've heard some pastors really create a whole sermon out of, the, out of what Jesus just said. I've heard some pastors say that those who do that make more out of it than what it was, that really it was just simply a greeting. Like, you know, really? This is Jesus' greetings to his disciples. Like, hey, bro, what's up? You know, peace. I'm here. Or, you know, hello again. Aloha. Something like that. Greetings, earthlings. I just came back. You know, here we are. But in fact, I believe that it's a greeting that's packed with meaning. Like to all of your trauma, peace. To all of the shock and awe that you just went through, peace. To all of your hurt, peace. To all of your questions, peace. To all of your fears, peace. To even the excitement that you're going through right now, calm down, peace. The ability to fulfill God's will in your life is based upon being fully filled with God's peace. You know, it's the lesson that Jesus tried to bring to the disciples through two different storms in their life. Your ability to fulfill God's will for your life depends on how fully filled you can be with his peace. In the midst of the storm. If you're, you know, like a zigzag up and down, like it's going to be really hard to fulfill what he wants you to do. But here are the disciples. The ones that like didn't necessarily seek Jesus out and the ones that didn't necessarily, you know, run away. They're all here and they're not going anywhere. Locked up when Jesus makes his appearance. The doors are shut, shut up just like the enemy wanted them to be, shut up in a room and locked with fear. And they didn't know if they should be coming or going because they were stuck. I don't know if this is why Jesus feels the need to repeat himself. The next verse, he said to him again, he's like, peace to you. 
as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's like, let me give you some assurance so you can unlock the door to a peace that passes all understanding. So you can unlock the door to a plan and a purpose that's good for your life so that you can unlock the door and actually begin to move because you still need to move forward with the mission that I'm giving you as the God, the Father has given me. And so everybody in that room, they're, they're assured, right? It says that he, he breathed into them and, and gave them the Holy Spirit. They're empowered. They're commissioned to move on and to move forward with life. Hallelujah, right? Wait. But one. But one. They're all assured, empowered, and commissioned, but one. Did Jesus really forget that one of his disciples wasn't there? It says in verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, depending on your translation, old school might say Didymus, which is twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. Now, trust me, I've read a ton of commentary over the last week. There's a lot of reasons why, why, why people think Thomas wasn't there. Truth is, we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. I told my wife this week as I was reading through all of this, everybody has their opinion. It could have been, it could have been questions or doubts. It, it, I mean, for crying out loud, in those days, did you not have to use like a restroom that's outside the house? He, I mean, he could have been just gone and went to the bathroom or something. We, we don't even know. But I don't want to dismiss. I want to read into this. And as much as everybody gives their opinions, I'm going to give you my opinion too. Here's where I think he was. You go back a, a few verses in John chapter 20. You know, like after the women had went to see Jesus, after Mary had visited him, when Peter and John was there. In John chapter 20, verse 10, here's what it says. Y'all think that they just hang out in this upper room all the time. But John chapter 20, verse 10, says that even after all of that took place, the disciples went away again to their own homes. See, we have this upper room mindset, like they all hung out there. But they went to their own homes. I imagine that through the tragedy, rather than continuing to gather together, continuing to gather together in his name where two or three are gathered together they had separated over the events that had taken place over the hurt that had taken place over the lost hope that had taken place and instead of continuing to come together as we should they decided they were all just going to hang out at their own homes even after the, the possibility of an empty tomb they still went back that's not enough to gather together to their own homes. Now, thankfully, I think that eventually they decided to come together. And partially, I believe that's because of the women. Women could be given a bad name in the Bible, but these guys were the first ones to testify. These, these gals were the first ones to seek him out, to come back and to share with the disciples. And I think in our head, we think when the women, when we read that, came and shared with the disciples, we think that they went to the upper room where they were already gathered together, but they didn't. I don't know if they divided up. I don't know if they went all together. But I imagine that since the disciples had departed from their circumstances into their own individual homes, that the women probably went to each and every one of them's house, knocked on their door and said, hey, check this out here's what we just experienced they were the first evangelists and it wasn't just to the gathering because that would have been too easy they had to go door to they went they were the first door knockers and so they run to each and every one of them's house and i'm not sure i'm not sure about thomas maybe Maybe they left him out. Maybe they forgot. Maybe Thomas heard what they had to say, and it wasn't enough to move him. Hey, we had this. We've been talking to all the other disciples. They think that we should all get back together again. 
why don't you come and join us? Maybe Thomas thought, no, I, I don't know that I believe you guys, or, or I don't know that that's enough to necessarily move me from where I'm at. I, I don't know if it was the events that got them together, or maybe they had pre-planned meetings that they were hanging out because, you know, they're all birds of a feather, whatever. Whatever it was, Thomas was still trying to process what had taken place. Thomas was stuck. I don't know if they went there and tried to encourage him or if he just finally decided to join the gathering, but at some point, the disciples shared their experience with Thomas. And so in verse 25, we see the other disciples therefore said to him, like, if what the women have said is, is not enough, we want you to understand, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, like, just pause real quick. Do you see what he's asking right here? Unless I see his hands. It's not just to see the hole in his, I want to see the hands and see his hole in his hands, right? He wants to see the print of the nail in his hands. He's not just asking to see Jesus. He says, I want to see the details, I want the intricate details. I want to see the imprint of the nail in his hand. A hole wouldn't even be enough. And put my finger into the print of the nails. He wants to feel the groove and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that Thomas's response has unfairly harmed his name for thousands of years. Because this is where Thomas the twin became known as Thomas the doubter. Just, I want to give you three points, and I'm going to try and go through these quickly. Because I got six points after this, not to scare you. As to why I think it's unfair to be labeled a doubter. I think that Thomas was a realist, and, and a realist sometimes has doubts. I think this is where a lot of us can be at times, especially when we're going through tragedies, and this, is, this was his struggle. But why it's unfair that he would be labeled a doubter for thousands of years, number one, I don't think his ask was too great for God. Now, history might say otherwise. History might say that Thomas was asking for more than he should have asked. But to some extent, I think we forget the fact that all of Jesus' followers had some degree of doubt after the trauma of the crucifixion. Every single one of them. And when it came to most of the prior appearances that we've discussed already, they got more than just, you know, hey, this happened, some encouraging words from another disciple. I mean, the women met an angel at the tomb. Mary talked to Jesus herself. Cleo and Pal, they got to spend hours with Jesus as they walked to the road to Emmaus and even sit down to break bread with him. The rest of the disciples, they've already been shown his hands and his side. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, verse 39 of the same story, Jesus essentially tells them, handle me. That's what he says. Handle me and see that I'm flesh and blood. It wasn't just, hey, here I am, look at the holes and see the, the hole in my side, the holes in my hand. It wasn't just that. He tells them to handle me. In other words, touch and feel that I'm not just a spirit. That's what the verse says. So back to John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. They got much more than just words from somebody else. So was Thomas's response really out of touch? So maybe it wasn't necessarily the words that he spoke, but possibly the attitude that was behind the words. Because point number two of why that I think it's unfair is that, that doubt is a mask. It's a mask. I'm not saying that Thomas didn't have doubts, but what I am saying is that his doubts weren't the main issue. There's a difference between an honest doubter and a dishonest doubter. An honest doubter has doubts, but they still want to believe. And I think that Thomas was an honest doubter. 
So what was Thomas's real issue? To some extent, there was multiple. Thomas was, was possibly jealous of the experience of all the other disciples. I don't know how you are, but there might be some sort of jealousy every now and then. You hear that, oh, God did this for this person, and, and they're just up here testifying, and, you know, we're supposed to have joy for them, but, like, I've been praying for the same thing. Why didn't he do it for me? Like, why is it everybody else always gets these miracles, and God seems to be moving in their life? They have these experiences, and I don't ever have any, anybody ever been jealous like that? Like, why not me, God? All right, y'all so holy. It's great. I've thought that. I want what other people have. I want all that God will give me. And if I can see other people do it, I want to be able to do it. That, that, that's just who we are. And so I imagine that there may have been some jealousy as they began to tell him this. And, and so he lashed out. Maybe Thomas felt left out. Is it possible that he felt left out? Like Jesus has done this for everybody else. And he hasn't done it for me. Like what, what is wrong with me? Or maybe the real issue was hurt. Doubt was masking the hurt that Thomas was trying to hide. Some of y'all may not understand, but the few times that Thomas is mentioned in scriptures, he's sold out for Jesus. And it's quite possible that he feels like Jesus sold him out. It didn't come to pass like I, I thought it would. I was sold out for this. And now he's no longer here. Is it possible that not only is he hurt, but he's afraid to believe again? Come on. We all know that for some of the things we've been through in life, that we've believed for certain things and they don't happen. And quite often you've got to work through that, that place of being afraid to believe again. I believed that once. I don't want to get hurt again. I believed that once. I don't want to go through this again. You're afraid to believe again. Because if he believes again, he could get hurt again. If he believes again, he'll have to do what it takes to tear down the walls that he's built up to protect his heart in that time frame of hurt. If he believes again, he'll have to do what it takes to rebuild not just tear down walls, but all of a sudden now I've got to rebuild. I've got to rebuild trust. I've got to rebuild commitment. I've got to rebuild relationships. If he believes again, he'll have to do what it takes to really heal. And if he heals, he'll have to do what it takes to move. Because if you're whole and healthy, you should be moving for the kingdom of God. Sometimes being stuck, as painful as it is, it becomes a comfortable pain. And it's easier to stay stuck and to have our doubts than it is to go through the process of doing what God has called us to do when we receive that assurance. The third thing that why I think it's unfair is that it was one mistake. One mistake. I was talking again to Stacy about this the other day, and she said, man, honey, can you imagine what it would be like to have your story written in the Bible. See, this is where the truth of the Bible lies, not lies, but lies ahead of every other story that's been written in history, is that when stories were written in ancient days, they were made to look like, made to, to make the characters of the stories look like heroes, like they were, you know, super, and they had no faults or anything like this. And the Bible is full of reality, can you imagine your story being written in the Bible? In almost all cases, those stories reveal their struggle with some sort of sin in their life. And then can you even imagine that for 2,000 years, the few moments of your life that have been written down on paper are judged by mankind? Can you imagine that those few moments of your story, your faults, 
that there's some pastors for 2,000 years that preach on your faults. There's some people that hold Bible studies for 2,000 years on your faults. There's people that have, have created divisions of Christianity on your your faults. There's, there's crazy things that have happened in the world over the few moments of your life that reflect your faults. Mankind is so quick to judge based upon one mistake. I mean, think about it. You can't think of David, as much as I love David, one of my favorite characters in all of the Bible, a man after God's own heart, without thinking about his sin. That's what makes him great in my eyes. You can't think of Jacob. Jacob's name, who was changed to Israel, that, that would become the father of many nations, the father of, of a mass group of people, the, the father of tribes, without thinking about the deception. You can't think of Peter and all that he accomplished in his boldness after the resurrection without first thinking about his issues before the resurrection. Can you possibly imagine what it would be like to have been judged over momentary, a momentary time in your life? One mistake. We don't even, he might have had great faith all of the other times and then this one time. He's been labeled, labeled Thomas the Doubter for 2,000 years. I, I, I don't know what Thomas is doing in heaven, but, you know, if he could see on earth, he might think, really? The Doubter? And you guys are preaching on that again? It's unfortunate because one mistake, and he's almost seemingly, that's that one mistake one mistake is almost seemingly canceled. Thomas. One mistake that could almost seemingly cancel you. What history has tried to do for 2,000 years started with the devil. There was an attempt to cancel Thomas because of his doubt. But just when the devil tries to cancel someone because of their mistake, mercy steps in the room. So what will Jesus do for a doubter? Verse 26, after eight days, it's, it's been a week, eight's the number of new beginnings. His disciples were again inside, and this time Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut again, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. The very first thing that's just a superficial surface thing that I want you to see is that the way that this happens, what Jesus will do for somebody that's a doubter, number one, and this isn't going to be on the overheads because this just came to me and about a half an hour before I showed up for church, is that he will put you on replay. What, what Jesus did for Thomas and his doubt was the exact replay of what he had just done for everybody else. Why is that important? Because what Jesus has done for everybody else, he will do for you too. And that's important for us to remember. What you see that he did in the Old Testament what ju wasn't just for the Old Testament people, he'll do it again. And what he's done for those who were in the New Testament wasn't just for the disciples of the New Testament because they were so righteous, because I just told you how much they were sinners. You know what? What he did for them, he'll do it again for you. What he's done for the person that you've heard stories of on TV tell about these glorious things of the Lord, what he did for them, he'll put it on replay for you. What he's done for somebody else that's been in this congregation that you may have heard their testimony and thought, I've been praying for the same thing. Why won't he do this for me? If he did it for them, he'll do it for you. Jesus will put you on replay. The second thing that Jesus will do for a doubter, he speaks peace to Thomas. Peace to Thomas. I already told you, like when he speaks, Stepped in, he spoke peace to their trauma and peace to their shock and awe and peace to their hurt and peace to their, their questions. Do you know that why would Jesus speak peace to Thomas? 
Do you know that the word doubt in the Bible, what it actually means in the original root word? It means to separate. It means to divide. And, and so when you have doubt, and James is very clear about this when he writes about doubt in his book, that doubt actually brings division inside of you. That doubt means that it's separating you. And look what doubt did to the disciples. It separated them all into their own homes. And that's exactly what takes place today when we start to have doubts in our life. It separates us oftentimes from the rest of the congregation, from the rest of the family of God. It doesn't just separate us from each other, though, because it can also separate us from God. So doubt is something that the enemy will use to separate you from where you should be. It brings brings division inside of you. And so when Jesus steps in to Thomas's life and Thomas is doubting what has taken place, he steps in and he says, peace. Now you might think that the opposite of doubt would be belief, but it's not. Do you know what the opposite of doubt is? Peace. Peace in the Greek. When he steps in and speaks peace, the Greek word, it may not be pronounced like this, but this will help you remember, is Eileen. It's like E-O-I-L-E-N-E. Peace. And guess what it means? It means to join together. To join together. There's this story about um, a missionary. His name was Jim Walton. Jim Walton uh, went into other tribes he would minister the gospel of Jesus to these tribes around the world. And then he would take time to learn their language and he would translate the Bible into their language. He was a Bible translator. And so there's this story about him being with this tribe. And most of them had been converted to Christ already. And so now what he did once they came to know Christ is he began to translate their language for them. And so he got to this, this question in their language of how to translate the word peace because there was no word in their language for peace. Can you imagine that? And there's this one day that just coincidentally happened when he was stuck in this, that the chief of the village was supposed to leave with some of the other missionaries to fly in a plane and go somewhere else. And so he was delayed in getting to the plane. And by the time he got there, the plane was just taking off and they left the chief of the tribe behind. And so the chief of the tribe gets really upset. And it says in the story that he comes back and he's just saying all sorts of things in his native language. And he's going off and off and he's just angry and he's upset. And so Jim Walton's not sure what he's saying because, you know, if you're trying to learn another language and somebody just goes off talking a million miles an hour, you can't even keep up with what they're saying, right? And that's what happened. So when things settled down, he asked one of the other tribesmen there, what was the chief saying? And he was crying out, screaming, I don't have one heart. I don't have one heart. And right then, Jim knew how he would translate the word peace for that tribe. He used the word in their native language that means one heart. One heart. You see, when Thomas stepped into the room himself, he had doubt and his heart was divided. But when Jesus stepped in, he spoke peace to give him one heart in the middle of his trauma, one heart in the middle of his shock and awe, one heart in the middle of his hurt, one heart in the middle of his questions, one heart so that he can move forward with what God was wanting him to do. So he steps into the room, right? And though he stepped in for everybody, he really stepped in for one. Because the next verse says, in verse 27, that he said to Thomas, he wasn't saying it to everybody else. I didn't come back to see y'all this time. I came back for one. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. What does Jesus do for a doubter? If he's an honest doubter, 
Jesus will help your unbelief. I don't want to go into the story of the, the demon being cast out of the boy and, you know, Jesus said, do you believe? And he says, you know, yes, but help my unbelief. He was an honest doubter. He wanted to believe. And that's where Thomas is. It's not like he was being dishonest. I no longer believe. He was being honest. Jesus helped his unbelief. He said, don't be unbelieving, but believe. Here, here I am. Now listen, I'm sure that even though this is what Thomas hoped would happen, that it would be hard to believe that it actually did. Have you guys ever been like that? Like it's hard to believe that something will happen in my life and then when it happens, you're like, wow, it's hard to believe that that just happened. I could keep you here with more stories, but I got, got to move on in that. But we have those moments in time. And, and I mean, when I look at the stories, I think in some ways that Thomas wasn't really deserving of that happening. I mean, in some ways you can see his doubt and the way he responded. You might think as a mature Christian looking in at immature Christian, Thomas the doubter, man, you're acting like a spoiled little brat right now. This is what you have to have in order to believe, Right? He might be acting like, you know, he's kind of haughty. Who, who are you? Like all of a sudden, we've all seen Jesus, but all of a sudden, you want to see the imprints of Jesus. Like who are you to think that, you know, this is what you get to see? The truth is, I'm not sure, and I, well, I am sure that, that Thomas didn't deserve this to take place. Really? He didn't deserve for Jesus to show up with the way that he acted, with his response with what was going on. But this, plain and simple, is the grace of our God. Because when everyone else thinks you need to be canceled, mercy steps in and doesn't let a man miss his moment to fulfill his mission. So point number four, why did God do this for a doubter? Because Jesus sees what man doesn't. Jesus sees what man doesn't. John chapter 11, you go back a few chapters, and, and in John chapter 11, you have Jesus and his disciples, they're ministering for the gospel, spreading the good news, and along comes somebody to tell them that his good friend Lazarus is, is on his dying bed, that more than likely he's going to die. And so Jesus tells his disciples, you know what? We're going to go back to Judea. And their response to Jesus, wanting to go back to where his friend is dying, says everything. In John chapter 11, verse 8, Thomas says this, Rabbi, or no, the disciples say this, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? Like, hey, you go back there, they're, they're trying to kill you. They're going to kill you. And so Jesus attempts to explain that he must go in order to wake Lazarus for the glory of God. Like this is for people to see how good God is. This is for people to see that I can resurrect the dead. This is for people to see that God does the impossible in their lives. So I've got to go back. And Thomas responds to Jesus in verse 16. It says, Thomas, who's called the twin, says to his fellow disciples, Jesus is like, I got to go back. And Thomas is with the rest of the disciples and he's like, I guess we're all going to go and die with Jesus, right? Now, I've read commentary after commentary when he says, let us also go that we may die with him. And some people would attribute that to his doubt, that he was a naysayer, that he struggled in his faith. I don't care if there was a little bit of doubt in the statement. To me, it's a bold statement to say. It's not like he was saying, well, y'all go, I'll just stay right here and wait for you to get back. I would rather have somebody that will hesitantly go and die with me than somebody who won't move. At least Thomas was the one to look at everybody and say, you know what? If he dies, we die too. To me, what he had to say was less doubt and greater faith than probably every other disciple that was standing there in the moment. Where some people see a doubter, Jesus sees a faithful believer. Later in Jesus' ministry, chapter 14, he's explaining eternal life. And so as he's explaining eternal life, he says in verses 2 through 5, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, that you may be also. He's trying to prepare their hearts. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. 
Now, here's the thing. Jesus often gave these words to the disciples, and he expected a response out of them that they didn't always give him. And so sometimes Jesus would put them on blast, believe it or not. Like, why do you still have no faith? Like, you know, he would, he would be very blunt with them about them not understanding what he's saying. And so I think in this moment, there might have been some question amongst the disciples of what Jesus is talking about. Because they don't fully comprehend that Jesus is going to die on a cross and get resurrected three days later and what's going to take place. They haven't seen the big picture, but Jesus is trying to prepare the way. He's trying to prepare their hearts. And so he explains this to them. And I believe that none of the disciples probably understood what Jesus was saying. But only one had the boldness to ask. Verses 5 and 6, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible, one of the most well-known verses amongst Christians, one of the, the most well-known words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right now, Thomas may be doubting in the moment after the crucifixion, but you know that he was once bold enough to help clarify the way by not being afraid to ask the questions of Jesus. A doubter, in reality, Thomas may have been one of the most faithful apostles amongst all of the 12 disciples. And notice Thomas's response when Jesus appears in the upper room to him, directly to him, verse 28. John chapter 20, Thomas's response says, my Lord and my God. He responded in a way that no other disciple did. He responded with a revelation that no other disciple had. Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God. How many know that was blasphemous for a Jew to say? Where we question some faiths, if Jesus is actually God, we should just simply look at Thomas and see, my Lord and my God. He had a revelation that Jesus was more than just a man that was a great rabbi upon the face of the earth, but that he was God himself. And it comes about through more than just Thomas's touching and seeing. Listen to this. This comes about through more than just the ability to see the evidence, to touch the evidence. In fact, it doesn't even say that Thomas touched Jesus. I want you to see this. It doesn't say that Thomas ever even touched him. Jesus offered himself up to be touched, but it doesn't say that Thomas ever followed through. If he touched him, great. We don't know. He might have touched him. He might not have touched him. If he touched him, that would have been the grace of God by going as far as Thomas needed him to go in order for him to believe again. And God will do that to you too sometimes. If he didn't touch them, that still would have been the grace of God because it's still giving Thomas the opportunity to once again personally experience Jesus. That's what Thomas was getting out of this. This wasn't for anybody else, but this was for Thomas. You see, Jesus may appear to them all, but again, he just came for the one. He wanted Thomas to understand something that we should have gotten out of every sermon, the last two that I've preached, that Jesus is a personal God. He's not just some higher power, but like he did for Mary, he made himself personal. Like he did for Cleo and Pal, he made himself personal. And he will do it for even the doubter. Jesus is a personal God. In spite of Thomas's doubt that came from his words, that came from his bitterness, that came from his hurt, Jesus came for Thomas. He proved to be faithful to Thomas even if Thomas wasn't being faithful to Jesus. Some of us need to hear that this morning. He will be faithful to you even when you're not being real faithful to him. 
That's the goodness of our God. But that's still not where Thomas got his revelation of my, law, my Lord and my God. Point number six, my final point, God will never leave you. Now, we all know this. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You've heard that scripture preached a million times, but Thomas had a revelation of that scripture. See, even though Thomas couldn't see Jesus in his moment of doubt, even though he couldn't see Jesus when everybody else saw Jesus, even though he couldn't see Jesus when they told them about their experience with Jesus, the revelation of who Jesus is came the moment that Jesus appeared and spoke directly to him about the words that he had spoken in the midst of his doubt. Thomas understood all of a sudden, he has always been with me. You guys get what I just said? He couldn't see Jesus anywhere in his life. But the moment that Jesus steps into the room and looks at Thomas and says, this is what you asked for. Wait, how'd you know that I asked for that? I've never left you. This is what you asked for. How'd you know? I have never forsaken you. This is what you asked for. Don't be an unbeliever any longer, but believe because I'm always with you. He brought him the assurance, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. When a man wants to give you a label that they think you deserve, it's the mercy of Jesus that can change your narrative. Blessed assurance. When the devil wants to cancel you because you've messed up, even just one time, it's the grace of God that can turn your mess into a message. That's his blessed assurance. And when Jesus appears to show you some evidence, he doesn't have to show you how great is his power, but he will show you his hands and his side because how great is his love. That's the blessed assurance that Thomas needed. The narrative of Thomas changed. His mess became a message, and he went out those doors that were once shut up to tell everybody in the world about the great love of his Jesus. Now, history tells us that when it comes to Paul and Peter, they're probably known as the two greatest apostles for spreading the gospel into the known world world at that time. Paul and Peter, everybody knows of those guys and their missionary work. There's letters in the Bible about each one of them. But do you know that history also tells us and yet doesn't give him the credit that Thomas was probably the third most influential disciple for spreading the good news of Jesus in the world at that time? You might think, well, what about James or, you know, what about any of the other disciples? But Thomas the doubter, yes, Thomas the doubter became St. Thomas. Thomas the doubter became a missionary that endured exactly what Paul would endure in his travels and Peter would endure in his travels and died the exact same way that they died for their faith. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named K.P. Yohannan. Uh, he's an Indian from India that started a mission field uh, ministry called Gospel for Asia, GFA. One of the largest missionary organizations in the world today. K.P. Yohannan's written several books. He has preached revivals, and he has done outreach. He has seen literally millions of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Tremendously influential missionary that is, is still alive today, but his, his life and his ministry go back years. And he wrote his admiration for Thomas in a blog that I had read, and this is what he writes. And this is the history of Thomas that we mistakenly call the doubter. In A.D. 52, about 20 years after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, Thomas journeyed 3,000 miles to India 
where he planted seven churches in the south. One of those churches was in the village of Niranam. One of the millions of villages throughout India today. Those first churches were among the earliest expressions of pure, untainted Christianity anywhere in the world. And near them, there's a stone with ancient Ethiopian script memorializing the spot where St. Thomas established the first church in India. Why is this so important? Because near them is the village where I was born. 72 years ago, of all the villages in India, St. Thomas came to mind. If St. Thomas had not come, had not brought the gospel, and had not established a church in my home village, 3,000 miles from Jerusalem, which, by the way, is further, he took the gospel further than any other disciple. Would I have come to faith in Christ? Would God have planted in my heart a seed to give birth to GFA world? And would untold millions not have had the opportunity to experience the love of Christ as a result? We owe much to the courage and faith of St. Thomas, who, according tradition, was martyred in India after bringing the gospel further than any other disciple to my home village. What Jesus will do for a doubter can transform him into one of the greatest missionaries this world has ever known. The final verse in the story of Thomas, chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, some people might read through this and think that Jesus was actually scolding Thomas. But I believe what Jesus was speaking in that moment wasn't as much for Thomas as it was for you and I today. These are the words of Jesus to future generations. Even though we may not see him working miraculous signs, even though we may not see his physical hands or his feet or the hole in his side, even though we may not see him walking around literally after the resurrection for those who are Christians today, we still believe. And as blessed as Thomas was in his life and his ministry after that moment, foreseeing Jesus, Jesus' words right here say that we are blessed even more because we have not seen. My challenge to you this morning is will you doubt or will you be like those who understand the power of the resurrection and share your story?